get a round of applause for that beautiful piece of art by Sarah Ross. Hello, uh, I'm Rosie. I run the events here at the bookstore. Um, I'm super excited about this event. It's very, very cool. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of Miriam's. She is such an impressive person. Uh, yeah, let's give a round of applause for her. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I was really excited when she um, pitched this to me uh, and instantly said yes. So I'm really happy that we could, we could make it work. Um, can you raise your hand if you are familiar with Housing Works as an organization? Great, okay. So I won't talk too much just because you all already have the nuts and bolts, but um, in terms of the bookstore and what we do su to support Housing Works, uh, it's pretty simple, we sell books. Um, and the reason that we sell books is because all the books have been donated to us, which means that all the profit that we raise does go pretty much directly towards funding um, some of the services that Housing Works provides, especially services that we uh, find it difficult to get funding from, from other sources like the government, the city, private donations, stuff like that. Um, we're primarily a uh, volunteer-run organization. We have amazing volunteers serving you drinks this evening, selling you books, you know, um, making recommendations to you. Um, it's a really, really nice way to be involved in Housing Works. If you want, it's just a, a few hours a week commitment. Um, you can volunteer here, you can volunteer in the thrift stores that we have all over the city um, and in Brooklyn and Queens as well now. So if you wanted to find out more about that, it's all on our website and also please, you can talk to me afterwards. I'm really nasal, I'm so sorry, I have a cold. It's not just the fact that I'm English, like I'm just a little bit um, extra nasal to this evening. Um, so yeah, thank you all so much for coming here. I also want to extend a thanks to Haymarket Books, who um, are extremely generous to us consistently. They donated books this evening um, for us to sell with all the profits going into Housing Works. So please do pick up a copy of The Long Term if you don't own it already. Um, they're available to purchase up near the register. And we also have copies of the most recent Penn Prison Writing Anthology, which you'll hear a little bit about um, when I finished. And Robbie comes up to speak. So uh, this event is the the third of four in a series um, exploring the relationship between uh, writing and literature and incarceration. Um, we've kind of come at it from multiple angles. Um, the next and last event is, is next Wednesday, next Thursday, I'm sorry, April 3rd. Um, it's hosted by the Penn Prison Justice Writing Program and it's going to be um, an exploration of uh, the challenges and intricacies of publishing um, incarcerated writers, what we can do to make it less challenging, given that we're working within an extremely capitalistic um, society and also publishing itself being a very capitalistic industry, uh, how we can you know, um, make it easier for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people to access um, writing opportunities. Um, you know, both from the small press level to the big five level. And we're also gonna hear from some folks who are running their own small presses and who are uh, working directly with incarcerated people to get their work out into the world. So that's next Thursday, and that will be um, the last event of this series. And before I bring Robbie up, I also want to mention um, a series that we have starting in mid-April, which is uh, a series of events mostly involving um, grassroots activists, writers, journalists, academics from New York who are doing work um, 
against uh, poverty, against criminal um, justice uh, wrongdoings, um, against you know uh, the world ending. Essentially, um, by that I mean uh, folks who are energized around the Green New Deal. We have an event on Earth Day. Um, with some pretty significant folks involved in um, writing about and, and pushing forward the Green New Deal as an actual policy that will you know, be the only one that saves this planet as we know it. Um, but the first event is April 17th, and it is on the, um, the paradox of progressive district attorneys, given that uh, uh, <laughs> New York has an election in the summer, and you know a lot of these folks are running on progressive platforms. Um, what does that mean? Uh, what does it look like? How do we hold them accountable if they're elected, given that a lot of people who are elected across America um, you know, just go on to be like tough on crime light once they're in power? Uh, and you know, completely go back on a lot of the promises and policies they, that they ran on. Um, so I thought it was you know, a really important conversation to have. Um, we've got some people from Vera Institute of Justice. Um, Scott Hetchinger from the Brooklyn Defender Services is, is gonna be speaking, um, and some other folks involved in criminal justice reform in the city. So you know, that's all online, you can look it up. Most of them are free, um, tell your friends. You know, these are meant to be events where you know, you will learn, but also you're going to have a lot of chances to ask questions and to contribute as well. You know, we want it to be a kind of a communal experience rather than just like a lecture, um, because we're the ones that have the vote, right? Most of us anyway. Uh, a lot of us don't. Um, a lot of us do. Uh, and we are also the ones doing the work uh, for the most part, people like um, Miriam and, and a lot of people in this room and a lot of people at Housing Works. So, you know, um, being informed is, is part of that and definitely, you know, being able to, to learn and then to educate other people is super important. So, yeah, that's my spiel. Um, please now welcome up to the stage uh, Robbie, who is here from the Penn Prison Justice Writing Program. Robbie. Thank you, Rosie. I'll be brief. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Robert Pollock. I'm the prison writing coordinator for Penn America. Really quick, Penn is a really old uh, literary organization, a membership organization for writers and readers that supports uh, free speech and advocates for writers all over the world. Uh, it's part of their Penn International uh, Coalition. Uh, one of their longest running programs is the prison writing program, which pairs writers uh, on the outside with writers on the inside and allows exchanges of, of writers. And we also have a long-running contest uh, in four genres, uh, fiction, nonfiction, drama, poetry, where we uh, celebrate and award cash prizes to uh, authors in these genres in prisons all over the country. Um, but that's the spiel. Um, in reality, I was, I was looking out at this room, I felt a kind of little wave of I don't know, magic. <laughs> it's like, there's no other way to say it. Uh, my friend uh, at Penn, he was, he, he's in the legal group and he's fighting for rights and he's like, oh, this is a win, this is a victory. And he's like, yeah, high five. He's like, yeah, it's good, but like human rights good. Which is that, yay, we're celebrating this awesome work of these writers who will never get out of prison. Huh. That sits kind of weird. It's like, yeah, I want to amp him up. I want to be like, yeah, 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 get it, get it. Put your hands together. But it feels a little off. Yet, still, there is a celebration in the connection that each of you right now with your ears and your eyes are making with people who can't be here. 
There is such a magic. The people up in the top right now, this moment right here, right now, is magical. And I can feel it. You all saw the video. I'm not going to say much longer. Just let that magic linger as we listen to the words of people who have worked directly with the people on the inside. And this magic right here, this is the kind of magic that you harness and it makes change. All right, thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for coming tonight and being here um, as we really celebrate an amazing anthology um, that's an inside-outside collaboration. Um, the anthology is called uh, The Long Term. Um, I'm going to just say, uh, people who don't know me won't know this, but don't take any photos of me. Don't take any images. I hate that. Um, and so I think other people will allow you to do that of them. So please don't take any images of myself. Um, I want to thank the Housing Works Bookstore and Rosie in particular for allowing us to be here today and to be part of um, sharing this work with you and being able to talk about a, a, a subject that's really important, which is a subject about long-term incarceration. Um, basically, people who are sentenced uh, to die in prison. Um, and we have over the years seen an exponential growth in the numbers of those folks who are currently in our prison system. And if you, um, I handed out some handouts to some of you to look at the national scope of numbers. There's a lot of work being done now to address this issue around uh, life in prison. Uh, the handout that I gave you and I'll give to others uh, later um, I'm not endorsing the solution that's being proposed, uh, which is a solution that's being proposed by the sentencing project around um, capping the amount of years that somebody could be spending in prison to 20 years and no more than 20 years. Um, and then the caveat is, except in cases where a person remains a public safety threat, which means kind of like I'm not sure what people are advocating, because then everybody's going to be a public safety threat for the rest of their lives and spend 90 years in prison. Um, I'm an abolitionist, a PIC abolitionist, so I don't think anybody should be behind bars. So that's just me. Um, so I'm not, that's not what I'm advocating. However, they've done a lot of good research and have lots of numbers, and people like numbers. So I shared a sheet of paper with you with lots of numbers on it so that we look legitimate. Um, I want to thank uh, all of the contributors who are here today and who will read their work, Kathy Boudin, Vicky Law, um, Janos Martin, and um, Sarah Ross is also here, and she's one of the editors of the book, and she's going to come up in a minute and speak to you all. I want to thank our friends at Releasing Aging People in Prison, um, and Jose is here, who's the new director. I also want to take a moment to just uplift uh, the memory of Mujahideed Farid. Um, many of you might know um, Mujahideed and, and know his work um, over a long period of time. First as somebody who was locked up for many, many years and worked behind the scenes. 
behind the wall and then came out and started working right immediately back on the outside to free people who were on the inside. And unfortunately, he passed away a few months ago, um, or a few weeks ago, actually, um, after a, a long uh, battle uh, with cancer. And so we really miss him, and we appreciate him. And this work is, in part, we're trying to take his legacy up and continuing to move that forward. So you'll hear a little bit from Rap in a minute. Um, uh, yeah, and I also wanted to uh, thank all of you for coming and being here. Um, I'm really privileged to be a contributor to um, the anthology, and I'll read a little bit of the piece that I wrote in there later. Um, but I want to say, you know, I hate writing, and I mainly just write because um, I, I've been an organizer for many, many years, and I always tell younger organizers to document their work. Um, it's better for you to tell your own story than for other people to write it for you. It's always better that way. And you know, I try to actually embody what it is that I talk about. And so as a result of that, I try to write a little bit about the work that I do on a regular basis. Uh, and to be able to also, writing helps me to think about like what is it that I think about things? You know, I kind of don't know what I don't know until I see it written down in some way. So, um, so I'll share a little bit about that. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna invite Sarah Ross to come up and uh, talk to us a little bit about the piece you saw introdu uh, introducing our evening, uh, the anthology, and then Sarah's gonna read a short piece from somebody on the inside who contributed to um, the book. So Sarah, please come up. Hey, thanks so much uh, for coming out. Thanks to Miriam for organizing this and to the bookstore for hosting us. It's, um, it's just really great to be here. Um, I'm coming from Chicago. Oh, I'm coming from Chicago, and um, it's nice to be in a place that's slightly colder than Chicago. Um, <laughs> it feels that way at least today. Um, so I, I guess I just wanted to explain a little bit about um, how this book came into the world. Um, it's a project that emerged out of three things. I organize um, and teach classes at uh, Stateville Prison. I work with other um, organizers in the city, and we teach arts and humanities classes at Stateville, and we have been for about eight years now. And, um, and the, over those eight years, we had been talking with folks inside about the Obama-era reforms and you know, feeling maybe a little hopeful. But every time some reform came out, folks inside reminded us that it never would touch them because they had such long sentences. Um, so thinking about um, when there was kind of a national moment of, of for some at least, um, celebratory change around criminal justice system, it just wasn't ever going to go far enough to um, to touch um, the people we were working with. Also in Illinois, there is an elderly bill. Um, this is one um, of the approaches that many states are taking to make a bill that says, if you've been inside for 25 years and you're over the age of 50, then you can jump through a bunch of hoops and maybe get out. And we had this bill in Illinois that had been languishing for a really long time and as an artist, I thought, you know, there's no culture around that. There's no visual culture around that bill. It just keeps coming up, and the few people who back it, back it, but there's no sort of popular education or anything around that bill. And then also, too, um, over the, that eight years of working with folks inside, um, 
Um, we did a project, myself and Damon Locks and another artist, Faresh Tatusi, did a project around time um, with a group of artists over the course of a year. And during that time, we really were learning from the artists in that class about the law and about, um, you know, um, what some of the spatialized conditions of time were inside prison um, and, and why people had such extraordinarily long sentences. Um, it was really overwhelming um, that year just to learn about exactly how long those sentences were. And so, um, you know, all of our students in that class and, and of the video you just saw have sentences so long that they will die in prison even though the state of Illinois has um, abolished the death penalty. So they are effectively sentenced to death by incarceration. So um, this idea about doing a year-long project, or doing a, a multi-year project with people inside around the long term emerged out of these different conversations and experiences. Um, and we thought we would um, make a prompt and give it to teachers. Over the course of two years, we teach about 26 classes. We teach 13 classes a year. We would give the prompt to teachers and ask them to take up the prompt in any way that they could if they wanted to. Um, so folks are teaching like um, Afro-AM or art history or Latino studies and they could take up a prompt around the long term. And from that we got a whole body of writing from people inside um, about the dimensions of long-term sentencing. We weren't interested in just what is long-term sentencing and what is the law because those numbers um, that Miriam um, is passing around, while they're really important, they really didn't have the kind of affective realities that we um, you know, knew from, from folks inside. And so we tried to ask questions around um, what other long terms does long-term sentencing produce. Um, and, and over two years, that yielded a body of work, um, this uh, hand-drawn animation done with uh, 13 artists inside. Um, that we hoped it could be like a popular education tool that would be easy to show, um, even though it's slightly too long for the young people. 13 minutes, we're told, is too young for the long people. <laughs> um, but um, but um, we developed this book project, a series of interviews with people outside who have done long sentences and family members who have folks that are still inside, a body of work. We tried to think about how do you make those statistics felt um, and so, um, so one of the th one of the outcomes of of that two year period of really working intensely with people is this book project, and we wanted to kind of extend those questions to people um, in our communities around the country and beyond about long term sentencing. So that's kind of how the the book came about. We literally thought we were going to self publish it because we do everything kind of DIY, and then um, and then somebody one of our I think it's Alice Kim or Erica Miners pitched it to Haymarket and they said they would publish it. It was kind of beyond our wildest dreams. And it also brought up some interesting things that maybe Robbie um, was talking about or um, other people were talking about, about publishing. We were, while we were putting this book together, we realized that we didn't think it would be able to get back in prison because of the content of it. Um, we decided to go ahead and publish it with what we wanted in it. And um, I made a clean version um, <laughs> that went back in the prison. <laughs> um, and eventually people, when it came out, they just asked their loved one to order it. And it went through prison mail, and they let it through. So knock on wood, everything's OK for now. But, um, but we did a lot of like talking with people about how do you get a book that you know, talks about the long-term struggle of a hunger strike back into prison and what kind of censorship is um, at work there. And so we got all kinds of tips, and one of them was to, to produce a clean version. So that's one reason why we did that. Um, 
So I'm gonna read just um, a, a couple of um, paragraphs from the first um, essay by Raul Dorado. He's um, at Stateville Prison. He has a life sentence. Um, he's a really um, interesting thinker and writer, and he um, wrote this in one of the classes that was taught over those two years. Um, and one thing that's super exciting about Raul is that he's gonna get his bachelor's degree um, this May, because we started a bachelor's degree program, and he's gonna um, get it. So, I mean, he's one of the students, so super exciting. So he says, um, the months of October and November of 2016 brought sudden and unexpected changes. Approximately 1,000 people from behind the walls at Stateville Correctional Center and 300 from its northern reception center were transferred to various facilities located in the southern region of the state. These moves were mostly a result of the closing of the notorious F House, the country's last operational panopticon cell house, also known as the Roundhouse. While a few prisoners welcomed the change, the redistribution of our brethren was dreaded by the rest of us. None of us knew who was leaving or staying until the day before shipments, when lists were read over the loudspeaker along with orders, pack up, you're leaving. Although very impersonal to us, it was uh, as if a ghostly voice of the death were holding a roll call. With a few exceptions, people in prison abhor change. We prefer, we prefer the hell we know to the one we don't. Decades worth of friendships are instantly destroyed as fellow prisoners are torn out of our prison community like meat from a carcass. Our crude displacement also strains family ties. The farther south we are transferred, transferred, the more difficult it is for our loved ones to visit and support us. Prison is not just a place, it is our life. A maximum security facility houses long-term offenders, many of whom have already served 20 years and have no foreseeable release date. Behind these walls, we form concrete bonds of brotherhood and just about every other imaginable relationship common to ordinary people. There are even blood relatives here. It's not unusual for a father and son or brothers to find themselves as cellmates. There have been instances where fathers and sons have met for the first time in prison. More commonly, we are coworkers, barbers, cooks, janitors, and so forth. We work and study side by side, eat and pray together, we coexist. In the narrative life of Frederick Douglass, Douglass describes his closest relationships with those he mentored in Sabbath school and he, those he labored with side by side in the wheat fields. Slavery was unaccommodating to family ties. Relatives were routinely separated. Knowledge and sweat became the bonding agents in the formation of new relationships. These conditions prompted Douglas to write, I have loved them with a love stronger than anything I have experienced. Then Raul goes on to describe that he was in a cell with someone for three years and they formed a really tight bond. Someone who's gonna jump and he says, Recently, and for no apparent reason, this brother and I were separated. One afternoon, I was in the yard exercising when he was at work in the inmate commissary. A guard approached the fence, called out eight names, and informed us we had to be escorted to our cells to pack, up, pack our property because we were being moved. Immediately, a herd of emotions stampeded inside me, and muffled voices whispered dark conspiracies in the hallways of my mind. When I got to my cell, my cellmate was already there. The guard rolled the cell bars closed behind me and said, you got 30 minutes to pack up. 
We soon learned that he would be sent one way and I another. We were given a half an hour to sort through our belongings in the last three years of our lives. In this regard, plantations and prisons are not much different. They are two forms of the same callous system, a heartless machine that sorts out men the same way the postal system mechanically sorts mail. So thank you to Sarah for reading and for really laboring to make this possible, both the video, the teaching. Um, I really encourage people to look into the Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, PNAP, which is the organization that Sarah co-founded with some other folks who are artists and activists and organizers in Chicago. Um, and uh, yeah, PNAP has been doing a lot of really important good work at Stateville and outside the walls as well. Um, and they're always looking for supporters and money, so you can always give money to PNAP. You never do that, which you need to. It's tell people to give you money. They have it, they should share it. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, again, please look up their work and support them. Um, the next person that is coming up is Kathy Boudin, um, and Kathy has an, uh, a, yeah, a contribution in the book, and Kathy is gonna introduce herself in, in her piece and all that other kind of stuff, but I just wanna say that Kathy's a huge touchstone for me, um, somebody who's been organizing, working, and fighting what, your entire life? <laughs> your entire life, um, and so always has something to teach all of us, so we're really happy to have her. Thanks, Kathy. You wanna sit on here? Great. So I'm really honored to be honored to be here, and I want to thank Miriam and, and Sarah. And uh, I was in Chicago for uh, the launch of this book, and had the benefit of seeing the artwork that that was done because uh, where it was held, there was art all over the room, and um, it's just a tremendous thing. I think that when you're inside, having your voices come outside just matters so much. And uh, so it's great to be here just to continue that process. I, um, I was in prison, so my writing is, and I was in a women's prison, so my writing is attempting to bring some women's voices and experience into this. Uh, Statesville is, is men. Um, and right now I work at the uh, Center for Justice at Columbia, and I'm also a member of RAP and worked really closely with Mujahid Farid and Jose was going to t is gonna talk a lot more about it. So I think I'm just gonna jump in and, and read. It's called On Being Human. We crowd into each other, pushing ourselves up against a window in the prison school. Through the wire and bars, we can see two of our friends surrounded by guards as they walk toward a small building. They disappear through one door, entering a space we may never see. A few minutes later, they reappear, coming out of a different door. They are no longer in captivity. They are free women. We wave. They can't see our heads or bodies. Only our fingers stick out, waving our love and support, waving our dreams. This is the waving goodbye ritual. We stick our fingers through the bars to say goodbye to friends with whom we have shared a life. I crane my neck to catch a last glimpse. The sun's rays bounce off the razor wire now, row on row, circle on circle, 
silver gleaming. I wonder what happens to birds and butterflies. Do they get caught? Do our dreams? I can barely see my friend. Now I can't see her at all. My gaze is caught in the wire. Back then, when I was still in, we were waving goodbye to women with nonviolent convictions. They were the only ones the parole board released. Would it, could it ever be our turn? Would society ever see those of us who had committed a violent crime as human beings with potential? Someone who had served her many years, suffered, served, and learned a lot, and was more valuable to society outside than inside? In our green pants and green denim shirts, we sat around the long table in the parenting center. Allie taught foster care and child custody law. Beth oversaw the nursery and taught the caregivers. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I got it. And taught the caregivers uh, of the newborns. Miranda spent weekends. Oh, that's okay. Okay. Miranda spent weekends as a caregiver with the visiting children. All of us were teachers, caregivers, or advocates in the children's center. We were also prisoners at the maximum security women's prison in New York State, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, where I shared 22 years with other long-termers. Professionals in education and child development and staff from other prisons often came to meet with us because they had heard about the Bedford Hills Children's Center and wanted to learn about our work. Most women are in prison for nonviolent crimes, the civilian staff member who was introducing the program and us assured the visitors. We stared at each other, swallowing what we knew, our histories. Almost all of us had been convicted of a violent crime in which someone died, but we did not dare to break the narrative that erased us. We are women who committed violent crimes. We are also worthy human beings. We knew that the civilian staff person was afraid to acknowledge that. And we each knew that even though she genuinely cared about us and respected our work as caregivers and teachers, she was stymied by the question of how a person she knows to be kind and empathetic, hardworking and disciplined, could also be someone who took a life or agreed to risk that someone be killed or seriously hurt others. How should society respond to a person who has killed someone? She would find it hard to answer the question. When a life is taken, how much punishment is enough? We were both grateful to have the opportunity to do meaningful work while in prison and afraid to jeopardize it. And we ourselves were in a process of trying to answer those same questions from within our own experience. We tried to imagine how to ever make up for the harm we had caused. We worked at connecting the pieces of our lives so that it made sense. We saw in each other the growth, the good that was possible in helping others. Each one teach one was our mantra. It takes courage to say the reality of our lives, the bad, the good, to wipe away the pretense, the simplifying. One of us, often sitting at the table with the visiting professionals, displayed that courage when she wrote, I am the voice you locked away and do not want to hear, but I echo through your conscience. I am your average woman prisoner, black, poor, with a history of family abuse. I came before your ice chamber, a 17-year-old girl, naive to the system, accused of two counts of murder. No, I'm not innocent in the legal sense, because I was there. I permitted an entry that caused two human beings to be halted suddenly in an unplanned violent act. I take full responsibility for everything I did. You gave me 50 years in a state penitentiary, yet the story of my life is not so alien from yours. The abuse I survived might be abuse in your home. Like you, I've overcome obstacles. The love I feel for my child is as intense as yours for your child. Just like you, I want to make the world a better place. I'm a statistic, but I'm also a woman. 
a friend, a teacher, a creator of life. I am powerless and powerful. I am a human being. By Rosalind Smith and her 38th year of a 50 to life sentence, arrested when she was 17. Next. John McKenzie's friends found him hanging by a bedsheet in his cell in Fishkill Prison in the state of New York. It was August 23, 2016. He had been sentenced to 25 years to life. He had served 40 when he hanged himself. He was first eligible for parole when he turned 55. He was 70 when he decided he could bear no more. John McKenzie was in prison for a failed robbery in which he killed a police officer. During the early years of his 25 to life sentence, he faced the terrible harm that he was responsible. He went on to create a victim awareness group for other men. He became educated, he became a Buddhist. Over time, he became part of the growing elder population and a mentor for the young people. After 25 years, he expected to get out. He had done everything right and more, much more. He had a perfect score on the risk and needs assessment used to measure the risk to public safety if he were released. He was a model of growth and transformation under the most difficult conditions, but the parole board repeatedly denied him freedom on the basis of the one thing he could never change, the crime. In reality, the parole board simply ignored the judge's sentence that made him eligible for parole after 25 years. The board decided that more punishment was needed. This denial of parole for violent crimes is a common practice in New York and many other states. The nature of the crime supersedes good behavior, remorse, rehabilitation, and lack of risk to public safety. The seriousness of the crime is exactly what prompted the sentencing judge's decision to impose a 25-year punishment. The parole board, in fact, overrode the judge and changed the sentence to more than 40 years. Ultimately, it condemned John McKenzie to despair and death. After being denied parole eight times, a judge repudiated this sickening routine and ordered the board to conduct a de novo new hearing so that McKenzie could be released. It held the hearing and turned him down for the ninth time. The judge held the parole board in contempt and again ordered a hearing so he could be released. Now having served 40 years and part of the growing population of aging prisoners, he was 70 years old, a tenth time. In response, he hanged himself. Shortly before he died, John McKenzie wrote to his friend saying, if society wishes to rehabilitate as well as punish wrongdoers through imprisonment, society through its lawmakers must bear the responsibility of tempering justice with mercy. Giving a man legitimate hope is a laudable goal. Giving him false hope is utterly inhuman. I went to a memorial for John McKenzie at the National Black Theater of Harlem. We sat in a circle and introduced ourselves. Some of us were long-termers, including men who had known him inside and had made it home to freedom. Advocates and activists, a woman whose son had been murdered and had met John when she spoke inside the prison at a victim's awareness group, one of John's daughters, each spoke about him, about what brought us to the memorial. A long-termer who had served 18 years of extra punishment imposed by the parole board's denial said, prison is like being among rocks, but John McKenzie was a rose in my life. Postscript. Please do not let my father's death be in vain, said Danielle, John McKenzie's daughter, at the end of the memorial. In the years since John McKenzie died, we have tried to carry the torch forward. Demonstrations in Albany have demanded the governor appoint new parole commissioners and not reappoint old ones. Advocates and lawyers, long-termers inside prison and family members outside have campaigned for new parole regulations. And some victims, survivors, representatives have told the parole board that not all survivors want interminable sentences. McKenzie's death shone a light on what was a hidden inhumanity. The struggle continues. 
In 2017, the issue of parole denials extending sentence is no longer a secret. Some progress is being made, but parole denials are just a part of the problem. They are part of a punishment paradigm that grips the soul of our country. So often driven by race, it is a paradigm that not only dehumanizes people in prison, guards and survivors victims, but also permeates the entire culture. Listen to former President Obama as he began to push for criminal justice reform. It was a historic hopeful moment, but even as he opened the door for some, he double locked it on over half the people in prison when he argued, let those with nonviolent crimes out, but not the murderers, thugs, drug kingpins. As a society, we have to understand the dynamics of social responsibility and individual acts. We tend to reduce the problem of violent crime to the comforting notion that it is produced by a bad person. We put him or her away out of sight, as if that is the end of the story. Individuals sometimes make bad choices, but are capable of much more than they were at their worst or weakest moment. We fail to acknowledge the role of poverty and discrimination in denying education, jobs, and hope to whole communities. Racism demonizes whole communities. The life and death of John McKenzie and the courage of Rosalind and thousands of others who have emerged from decades behind bars to become educators, beacons, wise men and women in many walks of life and in many communities is an important lesson in human complexity and creativity. They demonstrate our capacity to learn and grow, to accept responsibility for awful harm while striving to heal and live as complex human beings. We need more roses like Rosalind and John McKenzie in the free community. They have a lot to teach us about being human. <laughs> I just want to add that the person who said that John McKenzie was a rose for him was Mujahid Farid. And the person who got, went in at 17 and came out at 55 is Rosalind Smith, and she got out four months ago. Thank you so much to Kathy. Um, our next person that's going to read a uh, part of uh, her contribution is Vicki Law. Vicki is a journalist, a writer, um, an organizer, all-around badass mother, um, all sorts of stuff. So she's going to come up, introduce herself and her piece. Thank you, everyone. Can we get another round of applause for Kathy, please? So my contribution to the book is called Against, thank you. I would normally hold it, but I can't. Uh, is called Against Carceral Feminism. Um, and it looks at one of the many ways in which we got to this point in which we have so many people locked up. I mean, they didn't all sort of magically appear in prison. They didn't all magically get long to life terms um, in prison and all of the long sentences that we hear here, they are, there were policies and laws put into place, oftentimes in the names of you, of you and me and all these other people to ensure our safety. So my piece looks at one of the policies, and sorry, I'm trying to read this, um, um, that has enacted so many of the draconian laws and draconian sentences that, have, again, have been enacted specifically to curb um, 
violence against women and gendered violence. So carceral feminism, if you don't know the term, is a term that describes a type of feminism that believes that we need police and prosecution in prisons to stop gendered violence and ensure safety um, for women. And nobody, at least as far as I know, almost nobody calls themselves a carceral feminist. So it's not a self-identifying term. People don't walk around saying, I am a carceral feminist. It is a way of thinking about um, a feminism that relies on these institutions supposedly to keep us safe. Um, and before I read a little bit from my piece, which goes into this more, and you might think, which is a common question posed to people who talk about prison abolition, what about the rapists, what about the murderers, keep in mind that um, there are a tremendous number of people who are sexually assaulted every day, every second in the United States. In the United States, keep in mind that only 230 of every 1,000 sexual assaults are reported to police. So 230 of 1,000, so that's what, like a quarter of them, less than a quarter? And from there, the numbers get even smaller. Of those 230 uh, reports, only 46 of those reports lead to any kind of arrest. So police have a wide discretion in like how much they're going to investigate, how much uh, power they're going to put behind anything, and whether they're going to make an arrest. And of those 46 arrests, only nine of these arrests are referred to the prosecutor's office for prosecution. And of those nine, five of these result in a conviction. And less than five of these convictions end up with a prison sentence. So it's not that we are safer because we have these laws on the books. Um, it's not that this has stopped sexual assault. I mean, if you start with that original thousand, and if you think that prisons and police and prosecution and these long-term sentences keep you safe, um, think about the fact that five of those end up going through the prison system, um, going to the court through the court system to a conviction, and then less than five people end up serving any time. So I'm going to read you part of my piece against carceral feminism so you have an idea as to what people are talking about if they talk about car when they mention the words carceral feminism. So casting police and prisons as the solution to domestic violence both justifies increases to police and prison budgets and diverts attention from the cut. Sorry, I think I need glasses. And diverts attention from the cuts to programs that enable survivors to escape. Uh, such as shelters, public housing, and welfare. And finally, positioning police and prisons as the principal antidote discourages seeking other responses, including community interventions and long-term organizing. So if we're thinking about police and prisons as our go-to, we're not thinking about other solutions, which I think other folks will talk about later. How did we get to this point? In previous decades, police frequently responded to domestic violence calls by telling the abusive partner to cool off and then leaving. In the 1970s and 1980s, in response to this, feminist activists filed lawsuits against police departments for their lack of response. In New York, Oakland, and Connecticut at that time, lawsuits resulted in substantial changes in how the police handled domestic violence calls, including reducing their ability to not arrest. Included in the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, the largest crime bill in US history, the Violence Against Women Act was an extension of these previous efforts. The $30 billion, $30 billion legislation, I'm gonna give you a second to wrap your mind around $30 billion, provided funding for 100,000 new police officers and $9.7 billion for prisons. 
When second wave feminists proclaim the personal is the political, they redefine private spheres, such as the household, as legitimate objects of political debate. But the Violence Against Women Act signaled that this potentially radical proposition had taken on a carceral hue. At the same time, politicians and many others who pushed for the act ignored the economic limitations that prevented scores of women from leaving violent relationships. Two years later, President Bill Clinton signed welfare, welfare reform legislation. The Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity and Reconciliation Act set a five-year limit on welfare, required recipients to work after two years, regardless of other circumstances, and initiated a lifetime ban on welfare for those who were convicted of drug felonies or who had violated probation or parole. And by the end of the 1990s, the number of people who were receiving welfare, the majority of whom were women, had fallen by 53%, or 6.5 million people. Gutting welfare stripped away an economic safety net that it allowed survivors to flee abusive relationships. Mainstream feminists have also successfully pressed for laws that require police to arrest someone after they receive a domestic violence call. By 2008, nearly half of all states had a mandatory arrest law. The statutes have also led to dual arrests in which police handcuff both parties because they perceive each as assailants or they simply don't want to be bothered trying to find out who the person, uh, who the aggressor is. Women who are marginalized by their identities, such as those who are queer, immigrants, women of color, or even women who are perceived to be loud or aggressive, often do not fit people's preconceived notions of abuse victims and are thus also arrested. And the threat of state violence isn't limited to physical assault. In 2012, Marissa Alexander, a black mother in Florida, was arrested after she fired a warning shot to prevent her husband from continuing to attack her. He had started to attack her, she had fled, um, she ran into the garage, she realized she couldn't escape through the garage, she grabbed her gun, which was legally licensed in Florida, to her in Florida, went back into the house. When he charged at her again, she fired a warning shot. Nobody was hurt, the shot didn't hit anybody, but her husband left the house and called the police. She was arrested and although he had not been injured, he, she was prosecuted for aggravated assault. Marissa Alexander argued that her actions were justified under Florida's stand your ground law. Unlike George Zimmerman, the man who shot and killed 17 year old Trayvon Martin three months earlier, Marissa was unsuccessful in using that defense. And despite her husband's 66 page deposition, 66 pages, in which he admitted to not only abusing Marissa, but also the other women with whom he had children, a jury still convicted her. The prosecutor then used her discretion, speaking of progressive prosecutors or not progressive prosecutors, the state's 10-20 life sentencing enhancement, which mandates a 20-year sentence when a firearm is discharged. Keep in mind that the prosecutor did not have to add that enhancement. She chose to do so. In 2013, an appellate court overturned her convic Marissa's conviction. In response, the prosecutor vowed to seek a 60-year sentence during her trial. This was written before Marissa Alexander actually went to trial. Um, after much public outrise, outrage, public organizing, a lot of public organizing, a lot of mobilization, and a lot of bad attention, uh, the prosecutor finally agreed to a plea bargain in which Marissa Alexander would serve um, a short amount of time additionally, and I forget how much, it was a few months, um, plea bargains to time um, to a felony, 
get probation, be on electronic monitoring, and finally get to go home instead of 60 years in prison. And this all took place because of the tremendous amount of organizing and mobilizing that happened on her behalf. Um, but again, an example of how policing in prisons did not keep her safe from either the person who was physically attacking her or the full weight of the state coming down on her. Marissa Alexander is not the only domestic violence survivor who has been forced to endure additional assault by the legal system. In New York State, 67% of women who were sent to prison for killing someone close to them had been abused by that person. Across the country, in California, a prison study found that 93% of the women who had killed their significant others had been abused by them. 67% of those women reported that they had been attempting to protect themselves or their children. However, no agency is tasked with collecting data on the number of survivors in prison for defending themselves. Thus, there are no national statistics on the frequency of this intersection between domestic violence and criminalization. What national figures do show is that the number of women in prison has increased exponentially over the fast, past few decades. In 1970, there were 5,600 women incarcerated across the nation. In 2013, there were 111,300 11, women in state and federal prisons and another 102,000 in local jails. So think about that gigantic increase from 5,600 to, where are my math nerds here, 111,000 plus 102,000? That is a, that is a gigantic, gigantic increase. And these numbers do not include trans women who are incarcerated in men's jails and prisons. We don't know how many trans women there are incarcerated in men's jails and prisons. The majority of people in women's prisons have experienced physical or sexual abuse prior to their arrest, often at the hands of loved ones. And policing in prisons did not keep them safe from that either. Carceral feminists have said little about law enforcement violence or the overwhelming number of survivors behind bars. Similarly, groups organizing against mass incarceration often fail to address violence against women, many times focusing exclusively on men in prison. But others, especially women of color, activists, scholars, and organizers have been speaking out. And I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger because you can just pick up the book and read the rest. Thank you. Hey, thank you to Vicki. Um, now we are welcoming um, Janos Martin, um, who is from the ACLU, and will tell you more about himself, and will read parts of um, his contribution to the book. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. There we go. All right, so thank you all for coming here. I really want to thank uh, Haymarket Books and Miriam and all the other contributors who are here. And I, I very much want to thank Housing Works also. This is a very special evening to be here. You know, when I was a young writer, I used to spend a lot of time on the tables over here with my coffee, figuring out what I was going to do with my life. And it's really great to be back here. We also used Housing Works as a staging area for one of our protests against Mayor de Blasio during the Close Rikers campaign when he was doing a fundraiser around the corner. So thank you for that. We didn't ask you, but you know, we figured you'd be cool with it. <laughs> so uh, 
I'm going to uh, read from two uh, works. One is the contribution to uh, this book uh, about the Closed Rikers campaign. And I'm just going to uh, briefly uh, read from that. You know, I assume that most people who would come to an event like this are familiar with how Rikers Island is a human rights atrocity and how there is a campaign to close it and how we're getting closer to that victory. Um, but I also wanted to share the work that activists are doing across the country in another city to also change uh, their environment, probably a campaign that folks here are a little bit less familiar with. So I'll just briefly read um, from the contribution to the book. And also, I will say that this is an evening where we're talking about long-term sentences. And I want to read about two uh, jail closure campaigns, because there are so many horrific parts of the criminal legal system that each have to be dismantled. And if we can dismantle jails and keep people out of jail in the first place, then hopefully fewer people will be pressured into the pleas and other kinds of um, you know, totally unfair dynamics that result in people having such long sentences in the first place. <clears throat> when the Close Rikers campaign began in April of 2016, it was met with widespread skepticism, in part because Rikers has been an intractable part of the New York City criminal legal system for decades. In researching the history of Rikers Island, we found that the island's torturous legacy precedes even its use as a jail. The island is named for the slave-owning Rikers family who, brought the, who bought the island from the Dutch in the 1600s. Their most notorious descendant, Judge Richard Riker, ran the New York City court system in the early 1900s. Uh, sorry, in the early 19th century. As a member of the kidnapping club, he and others would capture free black men and sell them to bounty hunters back into slavery in the South. The Riker family later leased the island to the US military during the Civil War, the first time it was used as a jail to hold Confederate soldiers. And then they sold the island to New York City in the late 19th century when work on building a large-scale jail complex began. The jail finally opened in 1935, replacing New York's original penal colony, Blackwell's Island, and has been a human rights atrocity ever since. In August of 2017, in the midst of broader local and national conversations about Confederate monuments and public spaces, the Close Rikers campaign held a protest to remind New Yorkers of this history, that Rikers is rooted in slavery, the Confederacy, the dark parts of New York history. So the campaign to close Rikers uh, is, is one of many campaigns to close jails and prisons around the country right now. There's great work being done by organizers and directly impacted leaders in Philadelphia, Detroit, LA, Milwaukee, um, and Atlanta to close um, uh, terrible places in, in those cities. And I want to lift up the work of the people in St. Louis. And so this is something that I wrote a year ago, about, about a month after I had arrived in, in St. Louis to work with activists on the campaign to close the workhouse. There is a particular madness to the St. Louis legal system. Bail amounts are proposed not by a prosecutor or judge, but the shadowy staff of the bond commissioner working behind closed doors. People do not have a lawyer at arraignment, not receiving public defenders until they've spent over a month in jail. People charged with minor crimes are held at the request of tiny nearby townships with no means to process them for weeks. Because St. Louis County has nearly 90 towns, one vehicular issue can lead to infractions in a half dozen jurisdictions and multiple bench warrants. This is all before we get to the part about the workhouse being one of the most horrific jails in America. Named for its predecessor, a jail where detained people broke rocks in the hot sun, the newer workhouse is now 75 years old. It lacks heating during the cold Missouri winters and infamously no air conditioners in the summer when temperatures inside the jail can swell to 120 degrees 
and you can hear people scream through the windows for help from the parking lot. Rats, roaches, and snakes slither through the cells. As Close the Workhouse members say, it's not a place fit for animals, hellish and brutal. Before the campaign started, nearly 1,000 people were locked up there, mostly for low-level charges, as those with more serious charges were held in a different jail downtown. Everyone here in St. Louis thinks the workhouse is a terrible place and probably should be closed, but they need to believe it's possible. On my way out of a church presentation, an elder stopped me. I keep hearing for years about closing the workhouse, and it never made sense to me. But I guess if you can close Rikers in New York, closing the workhouse should happen too. Indeed, it may actually be easier to dramatically cut the number of people in jail here versus New York. In New York, an army of nonprofits and service providers have been working for years to reduce the jail population. And for all their flaws, New York judges actually demand cash bail less often than many other cities, including St. Louis. There is much, quote, low-hanging fruit for St. Louis to address before we even get to the true systemic reform we need. St. Louis, which Mark Twain described as a city with Midwestern charm and Southern efficiency, is part factory town and part Hurricane Katrina aftermath, and needs much more than criminal justice to thrive. The divest-invest message is now common in criminal justice reform, but referring to northern St. Louis as needing investment is a severe understatement. The city is half its peak size. The metro line intentionally snakes well south of black neighborhoods. Homes are literally crumbling onto the street as schools close for lack of kids. If the South Bronx is a food desert, then much of St. Louis is the Sahara. Yesterday, we shivered through a meeting, fully layered, waiting for the heat pipes to kick in, when we were startled by banging on the window, a man asking to take the metal scraps from the church dumpster. Not ours to give away. To live on the north side, you must be tough. In St. Louis, activists are capable of mobilizing hundreds of people into the street on very short notice. After the Stockley verdict, they did so for days. Few places in the country are capable of the mass mobilization that has been going on here intermittently since Ferguson. Activists here are politically savvy and cannot be intimidated by the police. The Arch City Defenders, Action Council, and the Bail Project have strong reputations in the community. And all are part of a large, more informal activist ecosystem where people serve meals to the unhoused, invite neighborhood children into their backyards, and show up to support each other's events. The sense of community here is real and powerful. And the most power of all comes from the perseverance of the campaign's members. Deirdre is a grandmother from a small township just north of the city. Heavily ticketed for minor defects on her car, she became a client of Arch City rather than acquiesce. And in retaliation, she was hit with another blizzard of tickets, ranging from not having a fence for her dog, to unauthorized residency by her own relative in her own house, to having an uncovered car stored in a driveway, the same car that remains there because she can't afford to fix the original defect. Failure to pay her tickets has landed her in jail several times this year. How this woman still has the strength and patience to endure this hostility and still organize for change is humbling. Even though people most responsible for the continued existence of the workhouse, like Mayor Krusen, are reluctant to argue for it, politicians here are nice, though not necessarily kind. This is a town where people apologize when there's nothing to apologize for and say, excuse me, when we weren't in danger of contact. One defense lawyer snickered, sure people are nice, prosecutors here are nice, but they keep sending my clients to jail. The political comedy here is layered over a deep, reciprocal sense of distrust. The strongest opponents we'll face will surely be the law and order crowd that will correlate the jail's closure to increases in crime, a sensitive issue here in St. Louis. These forces are led by people like St. Louis County DA Bob McCullough, who chose not to indict Darren Wilson for Mike Brown's killing. He's on the ballot again, being challenged by Wesley Bell, a black council member from Ferguson. We'll see if that gets attention. 
And it did, and Wesley Bell won, and defeated Bob McCullough, so we can cheer for that. <laughs> Last night, we held our first major Close the Workhouse event, and over 100 people packed a venue on Cherokee Street to hear from our members and leaders. It affirmed the belief that we will win. Winning will be securing a commitment from Mayor Krusen to close the workhouse, for Circuit Attorney Gardner to stop sending so many people to jail, and for the Board of Aldermen to invest less in jails and resuscitate struggling northern St. Louis neighborhoods. Winning will mean establishing a base of directly impacted leaders who can see through this transformative change over a period of years. And winning will mean dismantling a criminal legal system that only a few years ago revealed America at its ugliest and will instead set an example for the rest of the country to follow. Thank you. And uh, if you go to closetheworkhouse.org, you can learn more about the work that they're doing there and support the campaign. And also go to closerikers.org to see what the campaign here is doing to close our jail system. Thank you. Um, I have something to read, but I'm not going to read it right now um, because I'm a time freak. But I want to say this. Um, I want to invite Jose uh, to come up from RAP. Uh, to tell you a little bit about the work that RAP is doing to issue a call to action um, before everybody runs out before 8.30. I know how it is. I would be gone, too. So I want them to come up and speak a little bit about the work. Um, I want to remind people who are leaving and didn't get a poster that there are posters on the table you can take on your way out. Um, but we're going to make way for Jose to talk about the work of RAP, and then um, I will close out with a piece of my reading. Thank you. I want to first, uh, I hope I don't take up too much time, but I think it's, it's important there. How many people in here are familiar with the rap campaign? Okay, that's, that's, that's great. Well, rap advocates, we focus on the elderly because the elderly have languished in prison for decades, some for over four decades. I was one of those elderlies in prison. I was released roughly 15 months ago after 38 years of confinement. And, and, and the reason why I'm here, I'm here before you because of the focus, grinding work that RAP did to at least change, slightly change the composition of the parole board. Because up until then, I was repeatedly being denied by parole by law enforcement commissioners who, who didn't care nothing about my accomplishments, no matter how extraordinary they may have been. Uh, I attempted to shoot a, a police officer. Actually, I did shoot a police officer. There's no question about that. And I really have no regrets about it either. But so that's all they focus on. That's just, you know, they didn't focus on the, the transformation that I've actually made from the time I was a relatively young man until I was released in, at 66 years old. But rap, that, that campaign, that grinding work that they did to expose the bigotry and the bias of these law enforcement commissioners and, and actually got Como not to reappoint them once their term expired and instead reappoint commissioners with a diversified background that, that, can, they can, that can, they can embrace transformation, rehabilitation, and redemption. And one of these commissioners is the one who let me go. So we continue. Can anybody still hear me? We continue, we continue to 
call on Como to fully staff the parole board. The parole board now, by law, they're allowed to have 19 commissioners. It only has 12. That's seven. We need seven more commissioners with a diversified background that can balance the parole board so it won't be so top-heavy with law enforcement. That's one of the initiatives that we're, we're calling for. We're also calling for two legislative initiatives. The Elder Parole Bill. The Elder Parole Bill provides that people who are 55 years old and have already served 15 years of their time should appear before a parole board no matter what their sentence was. They should appear before the parole board and the parole board is to determine whether they should return back to society at this point in their lives. And the reason why we say 55, 55 in prison is really closer to 65 because of the stress, the stress associated with, with, the, with, with the things that go on in prison, uh, the brutality, the deprivation, the dehumanizing, that, that tends to age you a little more than people in, in society. So a 55-year-old man is closer to 65. And the 15-year cap, is, is, it didn't take me 38 years to transform my life. It doesn't take anybody that long. It doesn't even take 15 years a little too much, but you know, we say 15 because a lot of men, are, you got people serving 85 years, 150 years. So you know, we didn't want to make that, low, that number too low where it has no possibility whatsoever of passing you know, or being supported by some of these so-called progressive legislators. And the second bill that we are promoting is the Fair and Timely Parole Bill. This bill provides that when a person serves this minimum sentence, no matter what it is, if it's 15 to life, 25 to life, once you serve your minimum sentence, he or she will appear before the parole board and be judged by who he is today who she is today, not who they were, in my case, 38 years ago. So these are two, the, the two legislative initiatives that we are trying to promote. And I just want to add that we have a rally April the 4th, calling on Como to fully staff the board, and we invite everyone here to attend that rally. We also have an advocacy day on May the 14th in Albany. We provide free buses, so hopefully most of y'all can attend that event also. And anything else I forgot, David? <laughs> no? Okay. Thank you very much for this opportunity. So thank you to Jose and everybody at RAP for your work. I hope people will, um, you know, if you're on Twitter, retweet them or follow them. If you're on Facebook, post about the uh, action items that are coming up. The uh, April 4th um, uh, protest, I think, is in front of Cuomo's office. And uh, go to Albany on May 14th to support their work. Um, so I'm going to read from a piece that I wrote for this um, Anthology is called Circles of Grief, Circles of Healing. Um, I'm just going to read a part of it. Uh, okay. Mrs. Brown could be 35 or 55. As she walks through the door and takes a seat at the conference room table, I see an ageless and world-weary black woman. Right now, her face is impassive. 
She eyes me skeptically. After a quick round of introductions, I begin my workshop. What comes to mind when you hear the words trauma and separation, I ask the women. They are all women in the group to write down any thoughts. Don't analyze your responses, I tell them. Some of the women scribble on pieces of paper that I've distributed. Mrs. Brown does not. She's crouched, sorry, she's slouched in her chair, looking down at the blank paper in front of her. I'm nervous, even though I've facilitated many workshops for different kinds of people over the years. I wonder if there will be a disruption or a confrontation as the workshop progresses. After 10 minutes, I ask the women to share what they've jotted down about trauma and separation. A couple of women mercifully offer their ideas. Trauma is pain, it's suffering. Separation is lonely and is a loss. Mrs. Brown abruptly gets up and leaves the room. I think to myself, this is definitely not going well. I invite the women to share the names of their incarcerated children. Oh, that's right, I forgot to say that this group is made up of mothers who have a child currently jailed at the juvenile detention center. All of the mothers are women of color, which is unsurprising, since 97% of the children and youth in the detention center are black or brown. I struggle to stay focused, but I'm distracted by Mrs. Brown's absence. What's your child's name? And tell the story of how or why you chose that name, I say. The, mother, the moms become animated as they share their children's name stories. I'm only half listening, though, as I steal glances at the door watching for Mrs. Brown's return. Miss Diaz catches my attention when she says, I was in prison when Angel was born. He's my miracle, so I named him Angel. Poignant words that perfectly illuminate both a mother's love and the intergenerational cycle of incarceration. About 25 minutes later, Mrs. Brown returns. Her eyes are red. There's no mistaking that she's been crying. Some of the mothers look away as if meeting her eyes will lead to them to crumble too. Another mother, Mrs. Gardner, I think, puts her hand on Mrs. Brown's shoulder and whispers, we're here for you. Four deceptively simple words that contain so much love. Mrs. Brown drops her head and takes some deep breaths. We all wait. Someone passes her a Kleenex and she furiously dabs her eyes. Miss Jenkins breaks the interminable silence. Is it Manny? Is he okay? We hold our collective breath. After what seems like an hour, Mrs. Brown finally speaks. He tried to kill himself again last night. More silence. What is there to say? Then various voices combine. We're so sorry. The words are painfully inadequate compared to the scale of the hurt and harm. Ms. Diaz interjects, what you need right now, sis. After what feels like another eternity, Mrs. Brown says, I need Manny home. I need him out of here. But that's not going to happen. I feel helpless. I ask if they want to end the session early. A woman who hasn't spoken yet responds emphatically, no, this is our time. It's the only time I have with people who understand what I'm going through. I'm a guest here. I don't know these women, but they know one another. I look around and other heads nod as she speaks. I watch Mrs. Brown, who is staring at me through glassy eyes. She nods imperceptibly. Okay, I say, does anyone know what affirmations are? We're going to work on writing our own for the next few minutes.
In the last decade, greater attention has been paid to incarcerated parents and the children they leave behind. According to the Pew Charitable Trust, more than half of the people who are incarcerated have children under the age of 18, including more than 120,000 mothers and 1.1 million fathers. But there are also tens of millions of invisible victims and survivors of the mass incarceration epidemic. People like Mrs. Brown, Ms. Diaz, Ms. Jenkins, and their peers. They are parents, wives, husbands, partners, siblings, cousins, and best friends of those who are locked up. Most never have the opportunity to gather together regularly to address or discuss challenges and traumas of having incarcerated loved ones. In that respect, this group of women is privileged. Mrs. Brown's 16-year-old son was in juvenile detention. For his 17th birthday, he'll be transferred to the adult county jail. He had been tried, tried as an adult the previous year and found guilty. As an automatic transfer, he will be moved to county jail, then when he turns 18, to prison, where he will serve the remainder of his 25-year sentence. Mrs. Brown may not have her son home until he is 41. Manny's trauma was top of mind for his mother, but there was no doubt that she was suffering too. Manny at least had a counselor to hear him out at the juvenile detention center, but his mother and siblings were left to fend for themselves. Their grief remained unaddressed. That evening, all of us in the room watched as Mrs. Brown struggled to keep her emotions contained. She took deep breaths as she tried to keep calm. Incarceration carries an emotional cost for her and her family as well. The silence of contemporary feminism on matters such as these is an indictment of feminist thinkers and organizers. Mrs. Brown, a single mother working two jobs while struggling to meet the financial and emotional needs of her incarcerated son and other family members, is a member of a group that is currently unrepresented in most organizing efforts. Organizing with mothers like Mrs. Brown would illuminate the ravages of late-stage capitalism and offer opportunities for truly transformative justice. But often, their voices and presence remain left out. The imperative to build radically inclusive communities and to actually live in solidarity, rather than merely to demonstrate it, is urgent. We live, as, Beth, as scholar Beth Ritchie has termed it, in a prison nation. The needs of families with incarcerated loved ones must be prioritized, and not only by those struggling with prison issues. This should be a concern of a feminism focused on fighting oppression and on pursuing freedom. It should be a concern of a politics focused on the sources of people's suffering and pain. It should be a concern of a movement that posits, as Sadia Hartman teaches us, care as the antidote to violence. That evening, years ago, we wrote affirmations in a conference room inside the juvenile detention center. Mrs. Brown's face crumbled as she read hers out loud. My son will not die in prison. He'll eventually be free. Thank you. So thank you all. So we are, um, we're at the end of our time. Um, and I think, what time is it? 8.30. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so um, 
this makes me so happy, you don't even know. I'm like, this, nothing else, I mean, you're all here, that's great, but the time thing is making me so happy. So um, we, uh, we are gonna end with you being able to buy books, which uh, Haymarket donated and will go towards Housing Works, so please buy a book if you're interested. There are really a lot of great pieces in here. Um, we didn't get to obviously read not even you know enough of them, there's so many here. Pick up a poster on your way out. If you buy a button or two, those that money goes to Survived and Punished, which is a group um, that I am part of here in New York. We have postcards to Cuomo that you can fill out. RAP has a sign-in sheet where you can put your name and be on their mailing list. Please come back to Housing Works for the other stuff. If you haven't been here before, don't let this be your only time. I'm sure I'll be here doing other shit in the future. I'll let you all know about it, because this is a great space and a great place to be. So thank you for coming. I think they close at 9, so that's important. They're going to kick you out at 9 o'clock. Get some stuff to eat and drink, mingle, and we'll talk soon. Thank you all.